share uh, something that I've shared through several interviews here and there, but I want to be really intentional about it as it is Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, One in five American adults struggles with mental health in any given year, uh, and I am one of them. I, uh, you know, recognize that mental health is not a month thing. It is a daily thing for those of us that struggle. I personally struggle from anxiety and I've been medicated for it for many years. And it took me a long time to admit that I needed help. Uh, it took me a long time to find the right doctor, to find the right medicine, to find the right dosage. But Once I did, once I realized that I couldn't meditate or explain it away or excuse it away, I really began to feel like myself again, thanks to that treatment. And I was so ashamed to share this with so many people in my life, people who were very close to me that I hid it from. And only recently, over the past year or so, have I begun to be much more open and honest about it. And what I've found is it's created conversations where there's not only more support or understanding, but also a lot of curiosity. So I know that the stigma around mental health exists, but I wanted to share my story uh, or a bit of my story, at least in hopes that we can realize the more we open up about it, the more we break down the stigmas, the more we realize some of what we're telling ourselves is inside our own heads. Um, and I really found the support and the help that I needed. One of my favorite singer songwriters, uh, is a guy named Jason Isbell, and he has a tremendous song titled anxiety. And until I had heard that song, I'd never heard what it feels like put so beautifully into lyrics. So for those of you that struggle or those of you that like music, I encourage you to listen to this song. Uh, it'll tell you a little bit about, uh, what some of us suffer with in terms of anxiety. On today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Jessica DeVento. She is a clinical psychologist who works at Google uh, and YouTube, and I met her while we were doing some mental health awareness work for our company. And we've stayed in touch, and she's been very active with our internal community about what's going on in the world right now and crisis reactions, both on an individual and a communal scale. Uh, We got a chance to discuss many things in this episode. She's super insightful, very well informed, and, you know, a slight apology that I kind of turned it into a one-on-one therapy session for me, but I know there's some wonderful insights and tips in here that will help us all feel a little less alone in these challenging times, uh, both with what's going on in the current world and frankly, just life in general. So take good care of yourselves. If you or someone you love needs support, please reach out to the National Alliance on Mental Health. That's NAMI.org. Or you can call their helpline at 800-950-NAMI. If you're in crisis, you can text NAMI to 741-741. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. These are all U.S.-based resources, so if you need resources for your different locale, please do a search and get the help you need. It will make you feel better, feel more understood, and less alone. Be well. Jessica, thank you so much for joining Working Wife Happy Life podcast. 
you and I met on an initiative uh, about a year ago, I want to say, maybe even more, um, where we were doing some work on on suicide prevention and some initiatives there together. And it was such a great way uh, for us to connect in a really deep and meaningful way just right off the bat. Um, so it, do you mind just introducing yourself, um, kind of your career a bit before uh, joining YouTube and what your day job is now? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I provided a direct client service um, treatment and everything for a little over a decade, um, but switched um, in the most recent years to more of the corporate space. So most of the time I did clinical work, I worked in university health, actually treating undergraduate and graduate students in the university health centers oh. and doing other kind of work in that of that nature. And then I transitioned into employee assistance program work. So I was a vendor for Google, overseeing Google's on-site clinical services for the U.S. Uh, for employee assistance program. Now I'm chief mental health advisor at YouTube, reporting back up into Google and oversee um, all of our programs and communications for employee mental health and partner with leadership as a thought partner to address root causes of burnout, um, as well as other cross-functional partners in HR and yeah. also specialized projects, you know, that come up where a subject matter expert might be needed for mental health. That's great. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Well, I think we're so blessed uh, to have you within our company and, you know, just the fact that uh, we invest so much in mental health. And I think in, as a corporate culture, um, really bring it to the forefront of what we do um, and how we care for our employees, which is amazing because, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about the stigma of mental health. Um, and hopefully we're in a space as a society where that stigma is starting to get unraveled a bit, but there's still so much more work to be done. And I think having, you know, public faces and voices and roles and importance of um, responsibility that you have is starts to send a message that this is not something to be hidden. This is not something to be shamed. This is not something to rush under the rug and hope it goes away. No, this is something to invest in and really make sure we understand and support it. So thank you for all the work that you do. Um, and I know it's been a really busy month for you because it is May <laughs> Mental Health yes. Awareness. Uh, this year in particular, it is paired with a lovely uh, global pandemic. Um, and you know, you alluded to things like burnout. I think everyone's just kind of in this weariness phase of, of the lockdown and of, um, having our lives disrupted. And, you know, I know, uh, myself, somebody who's struggled with mental health in the past, it really is a struggle each day, uh, to stay motivated, to stay positive, to stay hopeful, to, um, you know, relieve anxieties, get the sleep I need. Um, so I'm certain that you're very, very busy and very challenged in this time, uh, but I, why I really wanted you to join and share with our community, um, you have brought to light some very, um, you know, kind of digestible and formulaic ways of how people deal with crisis management. So kind of what the arc is and, and how people can expect or maybe identify where they might be on that arc. Um, and I would love uh, if you could share that with our community because it was really enlightening for me. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're kind of what you're referencing are the phases of disaster recovery. And this is based on um, publication from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. It's important to know that this model is really scaled on a population or a public health profile. So it's what the community or the collective is going through and experiencing uh, kind of in a phased approach over time when they experience a crisis together. So individuals will still experience things differently. And yeah. um, just to point that out, that even if yeah. the community is in a certain phase, an individual may still be having a um, easier or harder time just based on their own unique circumstance. Sure. Because while certainly we're all in the same storm, we're in very different boats. And I love storm. I yeah. love that phrase and there was yes. a visual that you shared along with it yeah. that it just helps you put, you know, I think contextualizing anything at this point is valuable. Yes. It's, it's hard because there's so many emotions that come up that we don't have necessarily the language to put our finger on. Um, I, it's the first pandemic for almost everybody, yeah. I believe. And uh, it may be the first crisis at the scale that most of us have experienced in our lives or that has so directly impacted our lives. And certainly for such an extended period of time yeah. that it's a novel experience for so many people. Um, and that adds an extra layer of stress and uncertainty. Yeah. And so I, 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 I want to hear about it. Yeah. Just one quick second. Like, yes, of course. Particularly we're coming off this kind of societal ramp of, you know, hyper planning, hyper accessibility, hyper, uh, accomplishment, you know, just really just everything is accessible at any given point. Everybody is plugged in at any given hour. Um, you know, we've just been going, going, going. So now I think not only was, you know, the, the rug ripped out from under us, but that, that planning and that cycle of what does the future look like, particularly, you know, really for anyone, but particularly for those that struggle with mental health is sometimes the way that you are able to propel yourself forward is to look forward and think of the days right. where it will be better. And, um, I think that's weighing on people a lot, very heavily is just, I don't know what the go forward looks like. Right. Um, that so. uncertainty and the unknown, I think definitely exacerbates the stress that we experience because it's an unknown stressor. It's an unknown threat in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yep. If we're able to put the threat in a box or at least to put a very clear frame or context around it, um, then we're able to address it more easily, both physically with resources and tangible kind of things, as well as emotionally and psychologically um, and how we can manage our own inner energy as well as the attention we choose or are able to give to it at any given time. And so yeah. when we don't know what that planning process looks like, our brain naturally tries to figure out and define the threat so that we can respond. So certainly without it, and especially, you know, with um, a lot of communities having shelter in place, like lifted gradually, you know, or the quarantine that people are under sort of as a moving target, the date gets pushed back. And even when we go back to a new normal it's not normal. It's still going right. to be uh, pretty, you know, restrictions in a lot of communities. And so as that tends to happen, it's harder to um, be able to hold space and, and tolerate the distress that this phase of time is bringing for folks. You know, if you can put a timestamp on it one month, you know, it's going to be over in a month. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Our brains can go, I can last a month. Right. But now it's going, Oh, I don't know, a couple more months, maybe end of the year. We're not really sure. Maybe ongoing. 
hopefully we'll find out more soon, our brains gets really exacerbated pretty quickly, you know? Yeah. Um, and says like, gosh, well, I don't know if I can do it that long. Yeah. And I mean, and that, that's what cope. it is. It's like, it's, yeah. If you're running a marathon, you have it in your head of where the mile markers are, where you're going to need to sustain yes. your energy, where you're going to know that you hit the wall and it's going to be mental more than physical. What, you know, there's just some sort of plan in place. And I think that's, um, you know, what we're probably struggling with on a very macro and micro level. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And definitely how it's impacting people looks different based on their specific situation and what the stressors really bring up for them because of COVID for sure. Yeah. And in some ways life is still going on, right? There's still decisions to be made about yeah. where do I live and which school do my kids go to? And, you know, do I want to look for a new job or a new role? You know, those types of life decisions, if, you know, those of us, you know, that are not in a state of dealing with, uh, you know, mortality or loss or death or loss of employment, those decisions still need to be made. Mm -hmm. And they're very hard to make because there's so much of the unknown of what the other factors will be. And that again, that's right. Contributes to the anxiety and, and those right. There's less confidence in the decisions because we don't have the information we feel we need to make an informed choice. Right. So without that information, we feel like we're making a decision, you know, a bit in a vacuum or a bit as a guess. Yeah. And so even when we make the decisions, you know, our brains tend to, once we make decisions, it's easier to kind of get on board with that decision and move forward. But right now we still might be second guessing it more than we normally would because yeah. we're just not sure. It's hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, let's, so let's go back to where yeah. I pulled us off on this tangent. Um, but you were talking about the communal, uh, phases. Yes. So, uh, the pre-disaster phase is the first phase in the phases of disaster recovery, um, which is characterized by fear and uncertainty. So, um, you can think about, and I live in the United States. Uh, I'm not sure the, the global nature of the audience, but just to put that in context, the United States, obviously it hit later than it did in China and other parts of Asia. And so, um, we watched it coming. And yeah. we don't know what to anticipate. So there's a lot of fear during that phase. Then the impact phase is where there's a lot of intense emotions that show up. So in the time, like it really hit hard. I'm on the West Coast in California, um, that people have really big emotions and a huge range, shock, panic. You see people um, tend to focus on self-preservation and protecting their family. So think of all the toilet paper hoarding that happened yes. at that time. Yeah, uh, that, <laughs> that can be attributable. Um, then it shifts more into this heroic phase where a sense of altruism shows up. So you see a lot of people, um, not everybody, of course, but a lot of the community was reaching out and how can we help others? How can we get resources to those in need? How can we give money to this research? How can we make space for this? And there's a huge surge. Some of that has continued, but that, that takes a lot of energy and momentum. And so you see some of that, um, heroic phase sort of petering out, but the altruism is still important, I think, um, from a community resilience aspect to carry on where we can. Then we go into the honeymoon phase where you oh. see a shift in people going like, this is fine. Okay. I get to work from home. I don't have to commute. This isn't so bad. Maybe yeah. it's nice. I get to spend more time with my kids. Uh, obviously not everybody's situation. Some people, obviously it's even harder from the beginning to be at home. Um, but you see a lot of community bonding and optimism and like, rah, rah, we're going to get through this. So we saw that for a bit, 
But then we have shift, at least here in the United States, for most of us, into the disillusionment phase. The disillusionment phase is sort of where the full acknowledgement and realization of what the impact of the crisis really means. People really take stock of the um, kind of things that happen where resources are lacking or the strain on the, uh, the medical infrastructure, the strain on our other logistical infrastructure um, for the gig economy, for example, that's really struggling or kind of um, our folks who are preparing our food and recognizing that as an essential service, maybe in a way that we hadn't recognized before, as well as the full economic impact and the existential reality of the loss of life that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. So folks, of course, you know, naturally start to feel discouraged. Stress begins to compound and build. Physical exhaustion sets in. People tend to turn to unhelpful coping strategies just because it's like, what else are you going to do? Yeah. So you see an increase in um, people, you know, maybe things that kept them feeling healthier and more mentally healthy before, like regular exercise or maintaining sleep eating, you know, a balanced diet, you see a lot of that let go. A lot of our routines let go. Erratic sleep schedules, an increase in substance use, uh, maybe lashing out at others when they're stressed. It's yes. <laughs> yes. raising my head here. <laughs> I know. I'm sure we've all multiple uh, times yeah. per day. <laughs> yes. I also have two little kids in the home and, you know, find myself raising my voice at them more than I'd like to admit. And it's yeah, hard. It it's is. hard. And that stress has, that energy from that stress has to go somewhere. And if our general coping mechanisms aren't working anymore, you know, it's hard to learn new ways to cope during a crisis while you're still experiencing the stressor. It's not like a crisis that hits and then goes away and you can rebuild. This is a crisis that sustained for so long. And so our typical timeline of how we look and evaluate crises or even how we look and evaluate these phases of disaster recovery are different or a little, a lot of this is sort of up in the air. Yeah. We, like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like when you're biking where you like think you've re- reached the crest of the hill and then all of a sudden it just, you turn a corner, it keeps going, it keeps going. And there's that kind of, it's yes. like, it's defeating. Yes. Yeah. What we do know is when there's a sustained application of a stressor, um, there are certain ways that we can really work to build individual resilience But that doesn't mean that resilience isn't without pain and suffering. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's still hard. And it still means that we're going to be um, impacted negatively in some ways. Uh, But it kind of is the the resilience sort of speaks to kind of how are we coming out of this to, to learn and to be stronger. But that doesn't mean we don't, we don't struggle. Yeah. So as we start to come out of the disillusionment phase, there will still be trigger events, which are indicators that kind of bring us back down even into more hopelessness or frustration where we might feel like all hope is lost. So um, just trying to think of some examples of some trigger events, like folks going back into the office, you might see um, increasing fears of contamination which some, you know, areas are doing, or, um, the next flu season will likely be a big trigger event for us or any kind of additional pressures on our infrastructure to get resources or vaccinations approved. These can be trigger events for us where we're like, Oh, one more thing. Yeah. The upcoming U S election will likely be a trigger event for a lot of folks for various reasons. Right. Yes. 
Right. <laughs> we don't even have to go into we don't that. Have right? no, yeah, I was going to say, we don't have enough time. <laughs> um, what can help us during this time is to work to increase our tolerance for uncertainty, uncertainty and the unknown, which is really hard. Yeah. Um, focusing on what is within our control. We can acknowledge and recognize what's without what what's outside of our control. But when our focus and attention starts to build on these and it starts to interrupt our ability to be present with our day-to-day lives, then it's yeah. not helpful to think about those things outside of our control anymore. So it's important we acknowledge them, but then redirect our attention onto factors within our control in our homes at any given time and with our, our families and such. Yeah. Um, that's a really hard one. It's, it's really yes. hard because you're, you know, I've, I've found myself many days saying to myself, you know, if I do like a zoom yoga class or something, they're like, set an intention. I'm like, okay, my intention for today is that I can only control what I can control. Yes. And I'll have that moment. And then I'll think about it once or twice during the day, but then the news is on, or then, uh, you know, you read an article or, or an email comes in or something that reminds you of how much loss of control exists. And it's a really mm-hmm. challenging kind of exercise in being present with that sentiment. That's right. And we can't control how much content there is about COVID right. and kind of what's going on in the world. Um, for example, we can't control how much information about COVID and misinformation and all that kind of stuff is on social media and on these platforms or even on the news. Yeah. But what we can control is how much we're allowing ourselves to be exposed to that content. Yeah. Yeah. So for myself, like I'm working on COVID crisis response day in, day out. And then I still feel like I need to stay up to date on the latest news and research in this area. So I'll spend a little time, you know, doing that every day as well. But I found that it started interfering with my sleep. Yeah. And for me, especially when my sleep gets disrupted, um, I find that my mental health suffers very quickly within a matter of a week. And so for me, I always optimize for making sure I regulate my sleep and getting enough sleep every night as best I can. So what's your, what's your, what's your thing? Cause sleep is my, my thing as well. I I get the middle of the night insomnia where I wake up and then I can't get back to bed. Um, Right. No problem falling asleep. Uh, it used to only happen a couple of years ago, like when I, you know, would have too many glasses of wine or something. Right. Now it's indiscriminate. And it just, you know, the worst I've had was uh, this week. It was, I woke up at two and I was up till 7 a.m. Oh, wow. And my friend asked me the other day, she's like, and how do you function a day after that? I'm like, I don't. Then I go back to sleep from seven to 10 and then I'm a raging bitch to my entire family right. all day. Like it's just, yes. it's awful. And, yes. uh, that's my sleep struggle. And, uh, I'm just curious, is yours like falling asleep? Is yours the middle of the night? Like, yeah, I have trouble falling asleep and I wake up a lot, but luckily I'm able to go back to sleep, sleep quickly once I wake up. So it's very different. It sounds like from what you're going through. Um, but yeah, insomnia not being able to sleep and and all the ways it can show up is horrible. I found for me, I had to like shut off distressing content, news, social media, and even certain types of TV shows yeah. within um, at least an hour, even better, two hours before bedtime, which is actually, I think, a huge chunk of time. And it's hard for a lot of people to do, yeah. even to the point where, like, my partner, he does not work. He works in a different area of business. He doesn't work on COVID-related content. 
So after we get off work, what does he want to do is talk about COVID, 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 and this new thing he read. And what do you think? And how should we prepare? And I had to stop him and like, I cannot talk about this stuff at at night. Yeah. Like within. And so we set a time limit. And so um, he, he has respected that, which is great. And so we choose to try to have those conversations in the morning um, where we can. Uh, Because it really was uh, personally getting to me. And then um, I've also just worked really hard over the years to establish really good kind of sleep hygiene of like, um, which is hard to do. I'm not saying this is easy. And then a lot of people need support getting this set up. And I've even had professional help to regulate it. But going to bed around the same time, you know, every night, waking up around the same time every day, minimizing light and distractions and noise where I can, um, even getting the right temperature kind of in the room. Yeah, uh, I have white noise every night that yeah. I use, even for myself. <laughs> I found super helpful. Um, a lot of folks find that writing down what's in their head, if it's an issue of racing thoughts, that can be helpful. You just write it down because it's your brain. Your brain keeps thinking about it because it's afraid it's going to forget it. So yeah. um, if you write it down, you can set it to the side and your brain is more likely to be able to let it go. That obviously doesn't happen for everybody. And then, um, you know, professional support when it's needed, uh, whether that be therapy, you know, behavioral therapy to help regulate sleep to the next level, um, or even, um, you know, medication support with a primary care physician or psychiatrist. Yeah, that's helpful. It's helpful. And it's just, I think it's just exacerbated by, by everything that's going on right now, which is, you know, kind of what we were alluding to before, where it just peaks everything. Um, did we finish the, the arc? Yeah, there's one more. Yeah. There's one more phase, which I think is really the most important because this is what we, we need to, to hold hope for because, um, what we're going through will not last forever. So as much as we can focus on the temporary nature and the impermanence of it, that can help us to hold hope and know that in time, even some parts of the world are already going into this phase. It's called the reconstruction phase. This is the phase where we start to rebuild and get back to, to normal, even though that normal is going to look different Yeah, because the crisis will have changed our community in some way, but it can actually bring us closer together. And there's going to be learnings from the crisis that we can apply to how we move forward. Something I think about as well, all of a sudden it feels very normal and less shaming to talk about mental health, at least so it seems. Yeah. Is that something we can keep doing, you know? Right. And it's almost because everybody's like, yeah, everybody's in it together. So there's no shame. Well, should there have been shame before? Right. You know, I understand, you know, you know, different cultures and backgrounds, you know, a lot of the, the stigma that comes in, you know, it's there kind of really rooted into the whole system or the community where they live. Um, but I think this is an opportunity where we can really start to take lessons learned from this time where at least is a little bit more normalized and a little bit more destigmatized and let's continue that conversation as well as a lot of the efforts where we've like pulled organizations pulling together that never would have partnered before and they pull their resources to create, um, you know, an, an amazing and unique solution for the world. Wow. Can we do that more? Right. Right. Like what are the silver linings we can take away? Well, one thing that this is making me realize, like I've said at the beginning, we're so blessed to work at the company that we do for multiple reasons, but first and foremost, you know, I 
reached out to you because you were joining one of our leadership uh, meetings to share your insights and perspectives with us. And what are some tips for our listeners who maybe don't work in an environment that it's that much in the forefront of the conversation um, in terms of saying, you know, either recognizing when they need a break or ways that they can say they need a break where they might not feel as safe to do so? Yeah, it's really, really hard. Um, It's funny because I think some places may see psychological safety on teams go up during the crisis, whereas others it will go down. Yeah. Or it just may not kind of be even a concept in the company's mind. And I do recognize that a lot of companies, um, or it can even be team specific, might, you know, struggle from low sense of psychological safety where it may not feel okay to talk about ways you're struggling or talk about the workload balance being the work-life balance being off or the workload being too much or needing help in some way. And that's seen as a weakness or it's something that's just not discussed at all. Um, I still encourage people to think through what are they comfortable talking about openly and given the company culture, what do they think the benefits and consequences will be from talking openly about their mental health and really make an informed choice within what they're comfortable with and what's safe to do at any given time. So it may not feel comfortable, for example, to a person to come out and say, you know, um, I have a diagnosis of major depression disorder and I take medications and I need to wake up later in the day and start my day later because uh, my depression, you know, you know, and going on and on about whatever, right? Even though I, I, hope someday, you know, the future is we can just have these frank conversations and it's okay right. because yeah. yes, so many people experience this. Let's make that a normal conversation, but rather think through how can they talk to their boss about getting the support they need? That's very clear and actionable. That doesn't necessarily have to disclose details that they're not comfortable disclosing at any given time. Yeah, um, And it'll depend on the manager. But for example, you know, our, our uh, one-on-ones are scheduled for 8 a.m. on Mondays. And actually, I'm wondering if we can schedule it for 1 p.m. any day of the week because my brain actually just seems to work better in the afternoon and yeah. I feel more prepared coming into our meetings together. That can be, you know, a way around it versus, you know, my depression medication actually makes me really groggy. It's hard to wake up. It's hard for me to pay attention in the morning. Yeah, it's like setting boundaries in a way that you're comfortable with, um, one comfortable with sharing, which as we've talked about, there's no shame in this game. And it's everything I talk about as a breadwinning woman, that there's no shame in being a breadwinning woman and there's no shame in mental health, uh, and, and acknowledging your needs. Um, and you know, I think it's, are are there any protections? Like, I think there's legal protections around, you know, physical health, uh, yes. in terms of what you're employ- what you're protected in as an employee, are there any protections around mental health? There are, but it varies by, um, region. So some countries mental health may not be a, a protected class. Mental oh. health in the United States is kind of medical. So it's protected health information. Got it. And so, um, you know, yes, there's not supposed to be any discrimination or retaliation based on a person's health status and organizations are required to provide accommodations within reason based on, 
um, health diagnoses that prevent them from working, you know, optimally to help in, improve their productivity. Now, within reason, you know, is kind of where companies come in and start to look at, is it within yeah. reason to be able to to provide this or not? But, um, you know, obviously there's whole law firms dedicated to employment law to yes. make sure that yeah. these things are in place. So that is good. <laughs> yes, that could be another podcast. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so we covered kind of the arc that we go through as a community, which is really helpful because, um, and it is that inherent notion of not being alone. Um, mm -hmm. but what are some of the personal kind of things you had highlighted for us, um, and during that meeting, uh, kind of some of the things that people might be feeling, whether it's grief and loss, yeah. fear and worry, um, what are your perspectives yes. on that? So grief and loss, certainly. Um, it can be grief and loss because of the actual loss of life that we may have experienced of losing somebody to COVID or losing somebody to another reason, a death for another reason. But, you know, it's hard. It's harder to process during this time, especially if we can't grieve in the way and be there for them that we'd like. It's also grief and loss for how we thought our lives were going to be during this time. Yeah. So a lot of people are really minimizing the the things they've had to change and ways they've had to pivot and accommodate in order um, to kind of meet the regulations put on them because of this, 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 this virus. People are missing graduations, being yeah. able to be there for births of new family members, being able to even be physically present for a loved one going through a really, really hard time. And it is really hard. And yep. even to, even to, I think some folks also minimize, it's like, well, you know, I, I feel like I don't have, I'm not allowed to feel sad about this right. thing that I wish the, the way I wish my life was at this time, because so many other people have it worse. Yes. That's a huge, like that measuring of pain in a way. Yeah. Yes. It doesn't actually do us any good. Because by reducing our own suffering, we're not actually helping anybody else's suffering. Right. So by I like think, minimizing it and pushing it down, right? Yeah. It's it's weird because I I, I get it and I do it myself all the time, right? Like yeah. um, I can always say, you know, to myself or my family, like, well, uh, you know, but we're not food insecure, or at least I, you know, whatever, whatever the, the issue is. And I feel like I've done this before and I've done it a long time in my life. I remember a mm -hmm. friend of mine growing up, um, had a very tough up upbringing, lost her mom very tragically. And I always felt bad talking to her about any problems I had because I felt yeah. like her problems were so much greater than mine. And she hated that. And she's just like, you can't measure pain. Just like, yeah. I, that's not, my life isn't worse than yours. Your life isn't better than mine. Like, let's just be friends. And it was a, it, it's always been a hard lesson for me to take note of. It's, it is hard. It's, I think it's human nature and it's hard also to allow space for duality. Right. Because gratitude during this time also is important. Exactly. Yeah. But it's not, it's not well, at least I don't have food insecurity, so I can't, you know, or, but there's no, but, or it's like, yes, I'm really struggling, you know, with two young kids and working all this overtime and like trying to, to manage all these big life changes in my life right now, but at least I don't have food insecurity. It's, you right. know, we, we undo it. 
Yeah. Can we hold space for both? Like, I'm so grateful that I have these wonderful things and all this privilege in my life that allows me a certain level of comfort or a certain level of safety that other people or other groups may not have. And I'm still having a hard time and my pain is still valid, you know, in its own way. Yeah. Um, It's actually, mm -hmm. that's, that's a big like business training thing that we get instead of saying, but just replace, but with, and right. So as a manager, if you're, you know, even as a parent or a partner, like I love you, but it's, I love you. And, you know, that's a big, (laughs) it's a big meaning shift. Yeah, it is. We can allow, and, and allowing the space for the pain and the gratitude, but really the only way through grief is to feel it. We've got to process those emotions somehow. We've got to feel our feels. When we're stressed in this ongoing crisis, we can think of it from like a biological perspective. So um, the fight or flight response, which is the activation of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So this goes back to like psych or bio 101 for those of you that may have taken that class in undergrad. But the activation of the sympathetic nervous system allows us to respond to a threat by either fighting or running away because it gives our body enough energy to go. While this ongoing stressor is keeping us activated in that space for longer. And when we are activated to respond to a threat or a stressor, uh, it's harder to process emotions other than anger because that helps us to fight or possibly avoidance, like numbing it out because that helps us to run away and get away, you know, and, and obviously feeling fear, the fear motivates us to act as well. Um, but you might notice that, um, after experiencing a major stressor, when we really let ourselves kind of take a step back and think about it. And when we really let ourselves, what's happening is our bodies are, um, Coming back down to baseline, that's a parasympathetic nervous system activation or the calm. Our bodies come back down to baseline, restore our reserves so that we can be prepared to respond to the next stressor. So when that happens and we let more emotions in and we're reflecting on what happened, we start to feel sad. We might start to cry. We might start to shake. Actually, our bodies might start to shake and we might even start laughing. And all of a sudden you get this rush of these different kinds of emotions they're all there. We're just not letting ourselves feel it. And Uh, so it's important to just take a step back and letting ourselves process the wide birth of emotions that are very normal at this time, which can be intense and can be hard to do and even allow ourselves time and space to do it. Because again, biologically, our bodies are telling us it's not safe to process emotions right now. You need to react and take care of the stressor. But if there's nothing we can do to remove that, yeah, yeah. it's so interesting. And then, you know, you add to that the complexity of everyone, you know, maybe being in a different phase within your own four walls at any given time. So, you know, I've said, I'm sorry, more times the past few months than I think I have in the past few years, because you know, I'm sorry for weeping uncontrollably for no reason. I'm, you know, or a reason, or I'm sorry for losing my cool, or I'm sorry for locking myself in the bathroom for a few hours. (laughs) It's just like (laughs) these things that are happening that like, 
you know, I'm trying to take care of myself. And sometimes that means not taking care of the people around right. me. Yeah. Cause we're all stressed and we're all having yeah. our own reactions. And so you're right. One of the other things that folks are struggling with are strained relationships yeah. uh, because of that. Cause everybody's sort of in this activated stressed place and it's hard. And you know, our kids are, um, tend to act out more behaviorally too, because they yeah. may not have the words or the mental space to sit and process the emotions. Um, I wonder if there's an opportunity to reframe the sorry to a thank you. I mean, I do think we should take accountability if we've had like a really negative impact on other people and we've hurt other people, you know, to apologize yeah. for like how we messed up. Yeah. I think that's great. And to model for our kids. But I wonder too, if we can model like, wow, thank you so much for your patience while I just cried uncontrollably for three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so okay. much for the extra help that you gave the kids so I could lock myself in the bathroom for a while. Yeah. To like yeah, decompress really or powerful. whatever. Yeah. That's really powerful because it not only takes away the shame that I did something wrong, but it brings the other person into the solution and the support. It's it's I think the hardest part is being able to do it in the moment because we're so conditioned to yeah, but it's usually the it's certainly. usually the shame and guilt that gets the most of yeah. me at the end where I'm just like I'm an awful person. You know, it just it really, you know. I sorry, it's hard not to turn this yeah. into a one-on-one uh, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what else is wrong with me. Um no, it's it's you know, there it's just a roller coaster right now. Somebody called it the COVID coaster yesterday. And I was oh, like, awesome. Uh, that's exactly that really resonates. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been doing this for, I don't know, whatever, over a decade, right? I've been in therapy myself for over a decade. Yeah. I'm a huge proponent of therapy and I mess up all the time. And so I think I find those stories about people messing up just so humanizing and validating. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah, cause we are human yeah. and this, this is, this is hard and it allowing is. ourselves and others space and grace to make mistakes through this because we have, and we will continue to do so. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. What are, what are some of the things that, you know, you would tell anybody who's listening, who's either worried about themselves or worried about someone close to them, uh, are some like key indicators that you might need some professional help? Like yeah. what are some of the, you know, because, I think it was a little bit more clear, maybe, it, you know, before. before this, right? Because this has now kind of had this weird, like neutralizing blanket of despair for all. So like, how do you know when it might be more than what should be expected during a time of crisis? Yeah. Um, I, mean, I will sure say that even these, yeah, right. It is. But I will say that even though these reactions I'm talking about are normal, it doesn't mean that we don't necessarily need to take action or it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't want to take them seriously. They're certainly normal, but it still may be an indicator that we need a little extra support. Now that support can come in a lot of different ways. Um, so I would say the nutshell is like sustained emotional and behavioral change over time, like two weeks or more where you're not feeling like yourself, your, you know, sleep 
or appetite is so disrupted or you're not able to kind of um, feel productive or feel like you're functioning at your normal level in your day-to-day life. Um, even if it's like a gradual shift and there's no like huge red flag, this yeah. is still an indicator that it, when, it, when it lasts that long, getting some extra help is important. So is there something you need to change in your day-to-day routine? Is there something more that you need, um, you know, from a partner uh, for those that live alone, uh, you know, loneliness is a huge, I mean, anybody can experience loneliness, even when you're in a house of other people, I want to qualify that, but there's an even bigger risk for people who live in isolation or live in homes where, um, domestic violence may be taking place, this loneliness and the fear that sets in. And so I think being even more proactive for those groups to reach out and can, and to connect socially is incredibly important and essential. So investing in relationships, though, that feed you and give you energy and make you feel good about yourself. And it's okay to really draw boundaries for those relationships and social connections that drain you and you just feel like it's another thing. But if you find yourself pulling away from people altogether, that's a red flag. Um, And then obviously there's counseling. There's various counseling options via phone or video or even text therapy right now. Um, There are, you know, YouTube videos online that people can watch to help get some tips on how to take care of themselves. Lots of articles like the American Psych Association has put out, Psychology Today, anything you can do um, to to find things that help because it's going to look different for every person and even the small steps help and even um, it's kind of like just do what you can. You don't have to do everything, just do what you can. The other thing I'll say is people that have very rapid, extreme, like sudden shifts in emotions or behaviors over a short period of time, meaning an incredible burst of energy where they're not sleeping, uh, but still feel like they have a ton of energy, having thoughts of hurting uh, yourself or others or excessive thoughts or of death or dying that you can't get out of your mind. Um, you know, if there's a sh- extreme disruption, you, you know, you can't eat at all or you can't sleep at all, um, or are sleeping an incredible amount, you know, oh, 12 plus plus hours a day when you're not sick, not physically sick. Right, then these right. are all indicators that some, you know, this, this crisis has reached another level, bizarre, unusual thoughts, you know, seeing or hearing things that might not be there. These are all indicators that you need more urgent and probably immediate support. And okay. so reaching out to, you know, the national suicide hotline, um, or the crisis text line, you text home to seven, four, one, seven, four, one. I should pull up the national suicide hotline just to have in this. Yeah. And I'll, I'll include it in the right. Okay, too. great. I'll have, well, yeah. Yeah. We'll get all the resources listed. So it'll be part 1-8, of it. Yeah. one 800 Okay. And then I know you'll have it. I should, why well. is there not like a, uh, I don't know what it's called, but why isn't there a name to that number versus to the number? Like, oh, uh, maybe there is. Times. I don't know. Yeah. Because who's going to remember that in the time <laughs> of crisis? I know. I, I, That's a good point. We can, I, we can give that feedback to them. I'm getting distracted. Um, so it, what are some of the ways that you see like, in light of this, you talked about being really hopeful that we can come out of this with, you know, because people are more comfortable talking about mental health. What are some of the advances that you're seeing in 
this space since you've been mm-hmm. a part of it for as long as you have that you're that make you very hopeful and where are some areas that you still think we have so much more work to yes. do yes there is an incredible advocacy and movement um, in the American Psych Association, um, NAMI, as well as other orgs, for virtual mental health care in a way that ha- is unprecedented and in a way that I think um, will hopefully be sustained. So even like uh, insurance companies, you know, agreeing to cover virtual care, maybe that wasn't covered before. And people, you know, therapists who were really wary about doing online or phone therapy who are now agreeing to do that. And systems being put in place quickly to scale this work. Um, text therapy uh, has the utilization for text therapy has gone up quite a bit, which is a different medium that folks are not don't typically, yeah. you know, engage in historically, but it's becoming a new medium of support for folks where that that uh, you know, maybe they don't have the privacy the time or they just prefer the medium of text. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating to me. I can't, I, 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 I'm, I'd like to try it just to see. Yes. I, I can't imagine. Um, I, I don't know. That's hard for me to envision doing, to be honest. I mean, it's a great resource. I just think it's, I'm maybe of a different generation. To imagine you know, that it's working. so funny because um, I st- started it myself where I was sort I was in the process of switching it live talk therapists and um, because I had moved or something I don't remember to be honest and uh, it was a new benefit being offered by our company and I was going through divorce like my ex had just left and it was sudden and I was like you know what I'm gonna try this and see because I didn't have I was scrambling to get all the things in place that you do when you you yeah. know separate from a marriage and so um, I used it and it actually, I got connected with a therapist uh, who specialized in the issues that I was going through and who really helped to get me through that initial separation stage. Huh. I personally still prefer in-person therapy. So I did end up switching back to kind of a new ongoing kind of in-person therapist that I now see via video. Um, but that therapist really did help me. I, and I will definitely say that I, I wouldn't be, I think as well adjusted from it today, if it weren't, weren't for his support through text therapy. That's amazing. Yeah. Cause it seems so like acute, you know, and it just yeah. like kind of comes. So is it, sorry, I'm kind of yeah, fascinated. No, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Is, is, is it like an hour? Like you have a scheduled hour where you text back no. and forth or is it That's just a really like good question? No, I can only speak to the, the one, the type Extra that I used, text. but yeah. I don't think there's a ton of other types. It's asynchronistic text therapy, which means 24, seven day or night, you can text your therapist, like anything you want. Right. Um, kind of, at, you know, at least the, you know, the benefit we have unlimited. And then, um, the therapist comes on during a sign, like, uh, like their regular working hours, like assigned hours every day, once or twice a day, uh, every say four or five days a week, and then responds directly to those texts. So it's a back and forth, just there's some delay. Interesting. So obviously some of the downsides of that is not necessarily getting the immediate feedback, but the upsides of that is getting kind of ongoing, consistent support day to day. Yeah. which for me at that time was incredibly helpful. And right. for people Versus who, like once a week or, yeah. yeah. So I think people during this time that have, are really struggling managing 
feelings of depression or feelings of worry and fear and anxiousness ongoing, like to where it's interfering with their, um, day to day where they actually feel like they really need that extra help day to day. It might be a good option. It's going to be different for everybody. I don't want to, you know, say that that's the medium for everybody. Um, of course, cause it'll depend on their unique situation, but certainly help yeah. me. Oh, that's fascinating. I actually didn't have that visual of, of, you know, the, the value in that sense. I more thought of it as a communication platform, but it's actually more right. of like a consistency play, which could be valuable at different stages of life or different stages of a crisis. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And I just think just the general, external trends going and meeting people where they are and yeah. helping meet kind of, you know, I hate to say user needs, but you know, uh, human needs in the medium that's going to support them best. It's a, it's a different trend from more traditional psychology, where it's like, no talk therapy is the way to go. Talk therapy is still awesome. Still great. Yeah. But there's now we're like adding to the repertoire, adding to the kind of mediums of access to get people, to get people help. Yeah. I have a question for you. This has come up a lot of many times with many conversations I've had, but when people find a therapist, it's very hard to find a therapist that you feel like you jive with. And particularly with talk therapy, it can take a long time to kind of get everything out there and uncovered a bit so that you could get down to what you're really dealing with. Yeah. And at that point you've made a huge investment in your time as has the therapist. I've found it to be like a very challenging, uh, relationship to end. If I don't think it's the right fit anymore, I feel like I'm kind of done. Like I've been in and out of therapy since I was seven. Um, and I've kind of gone into it at various life stages where I felt like I needed some, some help. Um, but I found it's always a very tough relationship to end. Yeah. Do you, if do you, you see that on your side? Like, <laughs> um, yeah. as a, you know, doing cl- clinical work and having had several therapists myself. Oh, absolutely. Cause there's some level of relationship or connection there. And, um, but yeah, there, there are times when you need to shift therapists because a different style would be appropriate for you, or, um, it's just not a good fit personality wise, or they've taken you as far as they can take you for that specific issue, you know, for that moment in time. Um, clinicians are actually trained, which is, is really good to know. They're actually trained in helping people transition out of care, whether that's taking a pause ending therapy for a while or to a new treatment provider. And what I, yeah, but a lot of people don't know that, which is fine, you know, but, um, having that conversation as hard and scary and oh my goodness, as it can be to tell somebody, you know, I'm thinking this isn't working or I want something different, or I think I would like to, to switch to another therapist can be because we don't want to hurt the person's feelings. Yeah. Or we just don't want to have to like deal with that tension and discomfort. And so I think a lot of clients just stop. It actually yes. helps the therapist get better. Too. Yeah. At, at talking through that because, you know, it's, I, I've been totally guilty of it where like I just stopped going or my last therapist, I went on maternity leave and just never went back. You know, it's just, it's one yeah. of those things where it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's fascinating to know that they're trained on it because one, it's like, 
they're expecting that that is part of the relationship that you've established. Um, mm-hmm. But two, it helps them kind of tap into that experience and that that expertise that they have to help navigate it with yeah. you. Right. And end of treatment is part of the treatment process. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a lot of ways where you can help to wrap it up or to help to, um, yeah, to transition the care in a way that's more meaningful. And so having that conversation now, am I going to say that all therapists are going to handle it really well? <laughs> no, I'm sure therapists right. are going to make mistakes too. You know, we're also human. Uh, but, but most of them I, I think can help have like a really facilitative conversation, wh- whether it's just a one final convo, or maybe they ask for one more session to process it with you. Um, I've also seen it as an opportunity for some therapists that they didn't realize they were meeting the client's client's needs. Yeah. And once they get that information, they're like, oh my goodness, we were just on the different pages. I can pivot. And it actually gives a therapist not just to improve for future clients, but with that client possibly as well. And even as a therapist, I've had clients tell me And then it's actually deepened our relationship and helped them also get to another level of treatment and help me, you know, hone my skills. Um, And hopefully, you know, therapists are are doing their best to create the psychological safety and to make the space that clients feel welcomed enough to to broach that topic too. It's such an intimate relationship, you know, and it's funny, I find in my professional life and in general life outside, I'm not... uh, you know, non-confrontational. Like I have no problem having difficult conversations. I have no problem broaching challenging subjects. Um, But it's been a relationship that I've struggled with how to end it because I I think I'm the type of person that prefers more, you know, dealing with this issue, don't know why versus the ongoing. Um, Listen, I, first I want to apologize to our listeners for my voice because I am so congested from being outside, uh, today and trying to do some yard cleanup that my, uh, (laughs) allergies are going bananas. Um, but I really want to thank you, Jessica. This was so tremendously insightful, both from a, a level of what's going on with the crisis, uh, how to take care of yourself, uh, for individuals and even lots of tips and, and, awareness and visibility into ways to think about mental health, uh, even in times not of crisis. So thank you so very much for everything you do. Thank you so much for inviting me and for being such an ally for these issues in the workplace, as well as outside of work. Um, you've been an incredible leader in this space. And so I've been learning a lot from you even as we go on. And I will say, you know, I know that we, there's so much we can cover in this space that we didn't cover today, but I'm hoping people can take even one little nugget of goodness or helpfulness from this podcast and just recognize that while we don't know how or when we'll get through this, we do know that we will get through this at some point and we can uh, rebuild together and hopefully be stronger in some ways on the other yes, side. Very much looking forward to the reconstruction phase. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. I think we all are. <laughs> all right, Jessica, thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated. Yeah.